Space Cave. I'm David Huntsberger, a big warg to all of you. I hope this finds you well. If you like this show, I think you're really going to like this chat. It is uh, compliments or with help from Eric Lyons, who was a guest recently, and we talk about him in the show. I just want to say thanks to any of you who suggest topics or guests, and especially if you go the step further and connect me with a potential guest. This is no exception. Again, I'll say, if you like this show, you will like this conversation. Music, philosophy, science, what does it all mean? What are we doing here? Figuring it out. Um, She has a PhD from Princeton, so you know she's pretty sharp. And just a delight to chat with. Here's part one, and you'll hear me mess up her name in this episode. Um, but, But I get the chance now to say it correctly, so it sounds like I know what I'm talking about, whereas... In the episode, you'll be listening later and go, how, how did you not know that? Well, uh, I sometimes go into these things unprepared. I don't like to do too much research because then I feel like I'm just interviewing someone. Uh, and then knowing someone's name, probably um, not a bad idea. And typically, before we start, I go, hey, just real quick, how do you say this? And this was just one of those times where I forgot to do that. So anyway, here's part one with Dominica Romagni. Hello. Hello. <laughs> nice to connect in per- er, as close to person as uh, we can do during these times, I guess. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's good to see your face and hear your voice. <laughs> yeah, you can get a sense from someone, uh, you know, by the way that they use grammar and things in the email. But, you know, we now we get to have... Um, body language and all these things not quite in the same way that you would in person and mm-hmm. I, I i mean we could go on and on about what this is doing to the human psyche with like losing that you know like people are mm-hmm. just kind of zoomed out i think to some degree <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> yeah yeah there's what are they zoomed out from though beyond zoom what's the second part of that pun zoomed out from like their humanity a little bit maybe we're like everything is so detached that we have this interface we're so used to that that's where it seems like, oh, that's where all of the people that have passed on during this are. They're, they're just like in some digital realm. It's, it lacks like the familiar. This is too dark to start off with. What am I doing? <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like it's, it's, it's interesting to think about kind of or reflect on how these sorts of virtual interactions are actually different. Sorry, my dog is here. Also. Oh, hi. Hello, puppy. <laughs> this is Hank. Hey, Hank. Um, but yeah, because you're getting visual information, you're getting audio information. So what exactly is it that's missing? Um, and everybody, you know, especially at the beginning of the pandemic was talking about like, Zoom fatigue and how it seems like so much more fatiguing to be staring at the screen and talking to people as opposed to talking to people in real life. 
but what is it that actually causes that? And I think, yeah, it's hard to pin down. I think part of it probably has to do just with, you know, the fatigue of looking at a, like a backlit screen and that does stuff to your, you know, like your eyes and, and how you're visualizing things. But, um, but yeah, I think there are just a lot of those little micro cues. I know that as someone who I have like a certain level of social anxiety. So I feel like it's, it's almost like talking on the phone where you're like, you're trying to read someone's pauses and they're harder to read yeah. when you're on zoom as opposed to when you're in person for some reason and it's got to be something about like little body language or something like that i don't know yeah like they're always trying to teach ai to pick up on micro reactions and like smart tvs in the future will see you watch an advertisement and even if you tried to really stone face it they'll be like there's something when we brought in this uh, logo, or we brought in this mascot, people light up. So more of that. We must be doing that in person in ways that we can't quite pick up on. Yeah, it's interesting that like bringing up AI, because um, one of the things that I, I noticed that I was reading about recently, I can't remember exactly where, was um, <clears throat> one of the things that it seems like is hard for, you know, training AIs uh, is uh, directing their attention because it actually turns out that whenever we, uh, whenever we interact with the world, we get a ton of sensory information, but we're sort of automatically using all of these processes and like sub-level or meta-level processes to focus in on, okay, this is the thing that warrants attention. Um, and there's been some research in how like emotions are really important for selecting things for attention or calling things to our attention or holding things in our attention. Um, so yeah, I feel like maybe there's gotta be something, something similar going on where there are these, there are these, these cues that we subconsciously pick up on, on like what to attend to and, and things that <laughs> yeah. just is missing in virtual interaction somehow. <laughs> <laughs> to think in those terms of, of like AI being an, an, a way of speeding up to, to, if you were to say like, oh, by the way, I'm an AI, I would go, wow, that is extremely advanced. The every like, the little things that you do are extremely human, and I would guess the opposite is true from your end. That like, I would be an impressive robot, and it's really hard to fake. You know, you can fake the Turing test kind of behind a curtain, and maybe you could do some sort of. Maybe I don't even know if they're at a place yet where like the facial movement and the eye movement and if you had a convincing enough kind of wig and makeup combo and you were just seeing that, maybe you could go, I think that's a person, but there'd mm -hmm. be little tells and you would say that person uh, maybe on the spectrum or something. There, there, There's some affect that they have, but the emotion thing tied into it. There's There must be a, like years and years or decades or however long of millennia of evolving to know that oh yeah going to this tree where the we lay in the grass and the wind is moving the leaves above us just so and that's a perfect emotion to like propose to someone or whatever it is you know that we would say oh and you'd be sitting there with a robot and they'd go I feel nothing <laughs> <laughs> these leaves are doing nothing for you nah, nah I don't I'm, I'm not advanced enough why yet. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it actually reminds me, I had a, an interaction when I was a graduate student with a professor who shall remain nameless because one of my interests is in uh, philosophy of music and how music is, uh, you know, 
communicates various like levels of meaning or emotional content. And I kept going on and on about this emotional content and stuff. And this was a person who really loved music and, and was like, listen to music all the time very proficient understanding of music and they just said well when I listen to music I feel nothing and I'm sort of like <laughs> taken aback <laughs> like what do you mean you feel nothing how can you how can you love music this much and just so this this further confirms my um my theory that this person is a hyper intelligent robot actually <laughs> so that yeah. ties into to our conversation nicely it definitely does and it there's a weird like you didn't want to name their name and yet the opposite, if they had done something that was, say they had seen Hank and they came running across a park and hugged Hank and you'd be like, oh, I have Professor so-and-so. There's an emotion there that you're sort of proud to share. When <laughs> someone has done something that's kind of emotionless, you're like, I don't want to say their name because <laughs> it's going to sound inherently like I'm speaking negatively about them. It's so it, like non-human to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's yeah we think about these kind of like appropriate emotional reactions right and that seems like a very human thing to to have and by proxy that means like that's a good thing to do um that's a praiseworthy thing is to have the right emotional reaction in the right context yeah we have a whole system of laws based on that that like we've told people like psychopaths you don't fit in here and largely it's because there's such a small sliver but if that pie redistributes itself emotionally, that'd be really interesting to be like, do you can't lock me up? I'm just someone that feels emotion. I like music. Like we don't anymore. We're new humans. We don't like that. You're too volatile. Done with that. <laughs> We're, we've, we've evolved beyond that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it'd be such a weird thought to be kind of embarrassed of, yeah, I guess that rising drum action is a little pedestrian. It's very lower level of the evolution cycle. I apologize, gang. I'm trying to, I'm behind the times. <laughs> but we do, I mean, I think we do uh, to, to, to think about it the other, in the other direction. I think we do have certain kind of like, like over the top emotional displays make us uncomfortable, right? Or there are certain circumstances where being overly emotional is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about the level of like how fine grained it is, uh, how we deem emotion appropriate to certain contexts and which emotions are appropriate and what degree of emotion is appropriate yeah. to various contexts. Yeah. The, uh, so you are a, a fantastic cello player and Ooh. I'm leaving out like your credits. I don't know if you want to share them, but your band, I, I found some footage from your, um, your like pr online presence. I think it's just a website <laughs> and a link to your band. Um, oh, something bloom, uh, bitter, bitter, bloom. bitter bloom. Yeah. yeah. And you're just shredding this cello and you're kind <laughs> of emotionless. Like, I don't know if I'm expecting someone to be like nodding their head or banging their knee up and down really heavily to be like, they're into that cello. <laughs> like if you go see a rock concert and the guitarist is thrashing all around the stage and maybe the singer is running around and we would say, oh, that's an appropriate reaction and emotional. Not only is the music coming out, but then you picture them in the studio, the same, if not a better sound, a more like focused sound came out when they were just standing there probably with their fingers on headphones singing. And then mm -hmm. if we if we saw them do a whole concert live with their fingers on their headphones, eyes closed <laughs> we might be like, what is going on here? This is, why do we need that emotion in that situation? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I think, I don't know, there's, 
like there's I think this tight connection that we think about with music and emotion and you know whenever you read any stuff that's written either like in the philosophy literature or just in you know popular literature and the history of um you know literature you get you get this like music speaks louder than words all of these types of connections between music and emotion but then in various genres i think there are certain emotional um, connotations that get played up um, and the way in which the music is supposed to convey that emotion I think is like depends so yeah if you're if you're like in a space like you're at a metal concert or something then you're going to expect a lot of this visual um, expressive content <laughs> as well as auditory expressive content of like anger or you know frustration or or um, yeah sorrow or whatever, um, as opposed to like a classical concert where you might think that the music is still really evocative of like really maybe refined emotions or like yeah. a whole variety of emotions. But you look at the performer and typically they're much more kind of contained and the audience is more contained, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think of an opera where it is kind of closer to the the fingers on the headphones but maybe you know the the singer is just swaying a bit, or they're they're emoting a little, the hand in the air, and they're screaming out for their loved one who went away. And people in the crowd would be just single tear down the cheek. Maybe they have their hands clasped like under a cheek, kind of just lost in the the wonder of it. And that emotion is not that different. Like you said, like a, a death metal show or something where people are they're feeling what that emotion is being given to them, but it's kind of manipulated by the players having to also express that there's mm-hmm. a documentary about uh, Woodstock 99 that ties heavily into like this emotion that was bottled up and brought there based on the yeah. bill. Did you see it? Uh, I haven't seen the documentary, oh. but I've heard about it. And uh, yeah, I remember like all the sort of aftermath with Woodstock 99 and everything. It was, you forget about the bands they booked and what sort of crowd <laughs> that would have attract and what those bands did on stage of like encouraging people, not, not just in the music. It wouldn't be like an opera that's like, go ahead and break things. It is more <laughs> like them just a uh, quick PSA guys. When we're singing this next song, go ahead and break things. It was like that. So, mm-hmm. and so the mm-hmm. music had become like secondary like, when they failed to express it musically. It was just an announcement but I think of, um, so I got a little sidetracked thinking of this song that I think ties into this. And if someone's listening, like, why would that be your example? <laughs> <laughs> it's because for whatever reason, I heard uh, members of the band describing how they made the song. I believe the name of the band is the Airborne Toxic Event. And mm-hmm. if you've heard the song, it starts by going, and it starts sometime around midnight. And there's just like this plinking of a guitar. It's low, it's mellow. There's no chorus. There's no, it just is like one long thing that builds for three and a half minutes or so. And by the Mm -hmm. end, it tells the story of this guy. Now he could be crazy. He could be like too attached, kind of a stalker type, or he could be very romantic and he's kind of heartbroken. He sees his girlfriend or ex that he's not remotely over yet. And she's moved on and she's kind of cavalier in her actions. And she kind of shoots him a look as she leaves with someone else and she leaves this bar and then the song really picks up and is just like frenetic. So the I think it must have been the singer was like, oh, I just said to the other players, give me this emotion. And he sort of explained it as like this kind of building thing. Mm-hmm. Do you ever set out to do a song and have that kind of thing? Like, Or do, did you start playing and like, oh, weird, I'm feeling this emotion. I didn't know it until it started coming out through the cello. 
Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. And I think I have different experiences with it when I'm thinking about it, like when I'm writing philosophy <laughs> papers about it and then when I'm actually playing. Um, I think that, yeah, there, there, there have definitely been times where I've been playing something and, you know, especially like I, I have classical training. And so that's, you know, when you're, when you're working on a piece, you practice it over and over and over again. And um, I remember, you know, playing certain passages and even though I'd played them multiple times, still kind of in trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way to perform this? What's the best way to convey this? Um, realizing that like, oh, this phrase kind of, has this sort of a shape, which makes me feel this way, or makes me like feel like it's evocative of this sort of an emotion. And I can play it in a certain way to kind of emphasize that or bring it out more. Mm -hmm. um, so I think definitely, uh, there definitely have been times where I've been playing and I haven't thought about what I wanted to evoke first. And it's been the music that's kind of suggested it to me. Um, but then what it is about music that's able to do that, especially if it's music without words, is like a big question in like the philosophy <laughs> music literature <laughs> and I don't think anybody has a good answer for it quite yet when you're writing these papers and I guess we should get into and first of all thanks to Eric Lyons for setting this up he speaks so highly of you big friend of mine friend of the show um just a genuinely nice and good human being and yes. uh and we talked about science and philosophy and I still like he would explain it and I go, oh, OK, I think I got it. And then I'd find myself later being like, wait, but like, what do you what are the tests about? What are the what are the papers? What do you do you ever come <laughs> to a solution and go, got it? I, you know, from the engineering world, you could say, yeah, yeah, we know every load and every force on every beam and every truss of that bridge. There feels like some finality to that of like, all right, we solved it. And it feels mm -hmm. like you guys have entered into a world of kind of those thoughts are necessary to press ahead like into a snowdrift, but you turn in a paper like, yeah, music could be a lot of things, the end. You know, <laughs> do, do you feel like you circle in toward a thought where you're like, okay, I've stumbled onto what I feel is a truth? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's, it, it, philosophy has these two sides to it where on the one hand, uh, you do see these perennial questions, you know, perennial philosophical questions about like, what is knowledge and, you know, these sorts of things. And they crop up over and over and over again. Um, but then I think that you can also talk about progress being made in philosophy. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to get a definitive answer to the types of questions that get asked. But <clears throat> I think that there's, there's a way in which philosophy moves forward and maybe gets better at answering certain types of questions. Um, and then part of, you know, how it develops is like new questions come up because, um, you know, for instance, like talking about AI is now a big thing in philosophy of mind and cognitive science. Uh, and, you know, people like in social philosophy, talking about philosophy of gender, or philosophy of race and, and these sorts of things. So, so yeah, I think to answer your question, I, it's not so much that uh, I, I feel like, yeah, definitive answers are few and far between, but I think it's a lot of people genuinely trying to give um, at least a partial answer to really difficult, very general questions. Oh, all right. I, I like that. And I think, you know, it's maybe, I wouldn't say easy, probably common to dismiss that as a necessary thing. But then I think of like people watching someone have a seizure and you know, people maybe that were interested in medicine at the time or just psychology 
floating out their ideas. And the first ones had to have been so stupid. But you need them. You need to like work through going, oh, it's definitely not bats. Bats did not mm-hmm. fly into their head. All right, all right. <laughs> just a theory I had. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> just, let's just rule it out first. <laughs> but yeah, do you... I mean, philosophy also, like, you know, especially in the period that I, I work on, which I, my main area of focus, in addition to, like, contemporary philosophy of music and art, is uh, 17th and 18th century European philosophy, which is, like, scientific revolution stuff. And all of all of the branches of, or most of the branches of things that we think of as, like, separate sciences were all part of philosophy back then. So it was a lot of, you know, if you look at, like, the medical text back then, um, <laughs> there was a lot of, like, maybe it's bats, you know, maybe, uh, you know, they were just trying to muddle through with the with the tools that they had, uh, but that's how things progress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eric and I are both skiers, and I don't know why, you know, sometimes you're waiting for a flight, or maybe you, on the rare occasion, speak to someone, a stranger in the seat next to you on a flight. I find that to be even before the pandemic, that was very rare for me. But every just casual conversation with a stranger, maybe you're riding a shuttle together. It's it's meaning like you're put in a situation you weren't expecting to be, and you maybe share a little glimpse into who that person is, and then you go your separate ways. And every now and again, you meet someone that has a road they've chosen or a place they've ended up in life where you're like, how on earth did, how was this your interest? How'd you end up, oh, I specialize in 17th and 18th. Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> like that is, that's so bizarre to be like, I'm going to really pursue that. I'm going to really get into that. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it, it's a, it, it's been a circuitous route. I think that's true of anybody, you know, working in, especially philosophy. I mean, academic disciplines have become so specialized in general. So, you, you know, you talk to an English professor and they're like, I work on like American colonial literature, yeah. like, and that's it. Um, or, you know, mathematicians specialize and stuff. But I think especially like philosophy, because it's not the type of thing that you get exposure to until at least in college. Um, most of the people I've talked to who end up in philosophy studying any branch of it, it's always like, oh yeah, I just kind of stumbled into it and I was going to do this, but then I didn't. And <laughs> so now I do this. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, my, my journey obviously started, I was, I was a musician. Um, and that was what I was con- like, like, that was what I was going to do. And then philosophy happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I think there's probably two thoughts that I can think of just, and this isn't, this is probably uh, not enough thought given to this to like eschew it on a podcast, but just generally thinking that people, when they hear of, you did what, son? You got in- interested in Clark so-and-so and they're writing. And then someone is like in Little Miss Sunshine where he's like the world's second most Proust expert and, you know, loving and knowing everything about Marcel Proust probably has a value in the world. But so the first part of that coin would be people going, the damn oceans are on fire. Let's focus on that. And you'd go, yeah, okay, you're right. Maybe this is a a pursuit in life that's unnecessary. However, philosophy, and like we were talking about, like if we could solve seizures, solving the world or what we are, why we're here, how music ties into it, this would feel like a very viable and necessary thing. And I saw also on your page that you climb rocks, which my friend Farrah Alibay does that. She's like a NASA person. And a true badass. I feel like anyone that climbs rocks and also does cool science stuff is just such a badass. I had a professor <laughs> in college who did that. It's just such a badass. 
Um, but it feels to me like one of those things where you're standing out over a ledge or, you know, maybe you're under the tree where the leaves are, you know, blowing it. You, you, you have to have one of those serene moments. Am I right? That you kind of had to take it in and go, what is valuable? What is necessary? What, what do I care about? Was that part of the push to get into this? I, yeah, I, I wish I could. I wish I could describe it that way. I wish I could make it sound that majestic. <laughs> I think it was a lot more haphazard. Um, I think there was a kind of sense, though. Uh, so, I, so, so, you know, I started out, um, you know, I, I started out at a, at a music conservatory. And those places, like, rather than just specializing in music at a college, like conservatories are like very, very narrow focus, like, you're just focused on your yeah, take craft. me back through that a little bit. So your name, having really, I'm sure I said this in the bumper at the top, but Dominica, am I saying that correctly? Dominica. Dominica. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I should have asked you That's before. Right. Dominica. <laughs> and then, so your last name, I w- do you want me to guess or why don't you, maybe you should just say it so I don't embarrass myself twice. It's uh, Romani. I tell people it's like lasagna. The G-N is like yeah. lasagna. Okay. Dominica Romani. Uh, so there's... That's not like Kate Smith or a name that doesn't conjure any like where what was your family like? When did they, you know, immigrate here, et cetera? So your your name inherently has some like, that's interesting. Tell me a bit about your heritage. And <laughs> is there like a family element of you're good and we're really gonna want you to be in this conservatory, not just a music school, or was it like the conservatory finds people like you and goes, Get over here. You have to be. <laughs> um, yeah. So my family, I, I, I feel like cello again was something that I sort of stumbled into. My family wanted me to play an instrument. So my, uh, clearly by my name, my, my family is Italian. Um, my first name comes from my uh, great grandmother. I was the first girl born into the family since her. So in 70 some years, I think. Um, so they gave me her name. It's actually a very old fashioned name in Italy. It's not, <laughs> it's like, it's like Mabel or something like that. Oh, wow. It's not, <laughs> not super cool. I think um, it's, are you kidding me? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, so my family wanted me to play an instrument. Um, and my dad wanted me to play the violin. And I didn't want to do anything my dad wanted me to do. So I was like, I'm not going to do that. I want to play the cello. And I thought actually at the time that the cello was like a big brass instrument, like sort of like a (laughs) euphonium or like a tuba. And I walked into my first lesson and there was this cello and I was like, shit, that's a big violin. I don't want to play that. (laughs) Um, But I don't know. I, I, they, they persuaded me to give it a try and I, I liked it and it took off. And so it it really was sort of a, an accidental thing. And it turned out that, I guess I was kind of good at it. Um, and so people encouraged me to sort of keep with it and apply to schools for it and, and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so it always, it, it felt it's something I really enjoyed doing, but it, it definitely felt like it had this sort of like life of its own or this momentum. Like I was like, oh, I'm good at this thing and it's, it's, I like it. <laughs> but uh, did you, know. you have, you know, it's so adorable when you see kids that have not only chosen an instrument, but chosen to stick with it. And so there's a huge difference between like, you know, grade, maybe in the fourth grade, every kid's carrying like a little clarinet case or something. But then you mm-hmm. see later, sixth, seventh grade, this kid wheeling their tuba down the street or something like that. Or like, oh, and they have stickers on it. This is starting to become like an identity of, mm-hmm. wait, 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 that's my cello case. Was that, <laughs> yeah. was that you? You were like it, that transition from I'm good at this to like, hell yeah, I can't wait to get home and play. I love this. 
Yeah, I think that there definitely came a point where I felt like, you know, this is, I'm serious about this. This is a big part of who I am. And, um, you know, in high school, I like, I went to like a performing arts high school growing up, like I decided to do that. And um, yeah, it was, it, it was definitely like a big part of who I, who I was. And um, to the extent that like, I was like, I don't want to do academics. I just <laughs> just want to do music <laughs> uh, which is weird for how I ended up but uh yeah but yeah these seem like certain gifts that you know but anyone I talk to people that have you know had like PhDs from Ivy League schools etc are just like oh, I don't know like I, I just applied myself and I liked it I wouldn't say that I'm inherently gifted or something but this seems like performing art school not everyone goes to those and then to transition and get highly into academics and you know, was your family like, yeah, she's just like a force of nature or was it very critical? Apply yourself. No, you can't go to that party. No, you can't stay out that late. You know, you really have to work at this. Um, yeah, no, it, it was, it was very much not top down. Um, I think my family, I, I was a bit of a problem child. I was a bit <laughs> of like an angry, rebellious teenager. Like smoking um, so and playing cello. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I actually, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't finish high school. I dropped out. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, I, I think my family was just happy to see me doing something that wasn't destructive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned you had a little bit of social anxiety. What was, where did the angst come from? Was that what drove it? Like, I don't want to be around school. I'm, and you said destructive. Like, what were you, burning school property? What was going on? <laughs> No, I, I think it, it, it was much more like kind of d dealing, dealing or not dealing with anxiety as a kid um, and sort of not not understanding how to how to work with that. Um, but also being a bit sort of like anti-authoritarian. I didn't like being told what to do, um, that kind of stuff. And so the reason I, I ended up not finishing high school is because uh, I realized that I could I could get good grades without going to class. And so I just stopped going to school and I thought like it wouldn't be a problem. I was like, well, I'm getting good grades. So like they won't care. And then I got called in one day and they're like, you haven't been here in two months and we're going to expel you. <laughs> and I said, well, you can't expel me because I quit. And that was basically kind of the end of it. So I think, but I think a lot of it was just, I didn't like being in group settings. I didn't like being told what to do. I just... I just kind of wanted to be in control of my own development and my own time. And so, so yeah, I think the, the kind of like anxiety piece, I was like, I just want to play music and, and read books and have everybody leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it like then to, you know, a lot of rock climbers, you belay with other people, you have a, a tandem, you know, you're in a partnership, you're, there's a heavy level of trust there as a musician, um, bitter bloom, you know, you're playing with another player so it's not like you just, as a child, I was, you know, thoroughly independent. I couldn't work with other people because these things obviously require that. But like being in, say you're like in a company and you're playing, you know, in a symphony or something like that. Or is there a part of you that's like, yeah, this oboe sucks. I can't stand this. Is there... <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I, I think um, it's a good question. I, I think part of it. Uh, it's not so much being around, yeah, being around other people. I think I liked being around other people, but I think I liked it sort of being, being on my own terms or feeling like I was genuinely connecting with other people. So I've always, for instance, I've, I've never really loved playing in an orchestra, but I always loved playing chamber music. 
Um, and I think the difference there is that in an orchestra, it's, it has to be highly kind of regimented um, because you have so many people and they need to work together as sort of a unit. Whereas chamber music, like a string quartet or a piano trio or something felt more like an intimate conversation between a few people where you could kind of decide what your contribution was going to be and how it was going to be made in a way that maybe you didn't have in the kind of larger orchestral setting. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's that describes well my relationship with like institutional settings in general. <laughs> <laughs> and then probably as you read more, I mean, this seems like a hallmark of people that went on to do maybe extraordinary makes you feel uncomfortable, but atypical things, things that like pursued new boundaries, etc. It was, I don't, I, all of this organized nonsense is limiting me because of, because it's so structured. So people break out of that, you know, like obviously the Silicon Valley world is a lot of that, but then way before, you know, Einstein, and there's just been a lot of people where that seems like a thing of, ah, I'm not doing this. This is, this is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think, you know, I, I think it's important to, to like not overemphasize like that, that kind of strand, because I think it's, there, there are so many constraints, you know, uh, like, and I, I don't want to think of myself as one of these people. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not definitely not on that level. But I, I mean, I think when we look at, like, I look at really smart historical figures all day long, I look at like people like Descartes, or Kant, or Newton. Um, and yeah, I think that there's a level of like, yeah, you need this kind of independent thinking, or trying to, to, to break out of the box. But I think there's also a kind of uh, structure or rigor um, or, you know, uh, types of um, things that, you know, it's, it's not sufficient to, to just kind of push against things. Um, there needs to be a kind of acceptance of some sort of structure. Yeah. That, that is also really important to, I don't know taking whatever new idea you have and actually trans like developing it and transforming it into a kind of, you know, significant framework or contribution or something like that. So. And that process, well, I want to hear more about that, like walking through the developing a thought and really, but, I, but I, you mentioned something about these, these, you know, historical figures that, you know, people are familiar, that list you rattled off. Most people would know at least some of those names, if not all of them. And probably some people very interested in, one of those figures or, you know, and if they're not just hearing them, maybe someone goes, Ooh, I'm, they're writing down the names going, <laughs> this is interesting. And do you, when you get, you know, deeply into someone's life that inspires you and maybe they took a summer and they like tended a colony of bees or, you know, they did something that is uncommon and maybe you don't do exactly that, but do you find yourself going, Oh yeah, yeah. I, I need to do more things like that. Do these, do they sort of osmosis style influence the way you live your life at all? Um, that's a, yeah. Uh, I feel like it, there are definitely certain uh, things that I think I've taken from some of these figures. So, I mean, for instance, uh, you know, one of the main elements that always gets touted about this time period and the development of science is uh, the application of, of mathematics to nature. Um, but I think it, even more, there's, you know, people are realizing that a lot of these figures like 
Descartes or Kepler thought that mathematics was not only just good for physics, it was like good for the soul or something. <laughs> and so there's like this, this idea that like, yeah, you, if you do th geometry, it's like, it's good. It's, it's like mental exercise, but it's also a virtuous activity and, uh, you know, things like that. So, so I think through, I, I, I was never like a kind of super good at math as a kid or anything like that um but through reading some of these figures it's made it's drawn me into you know looking back into euclid and trying to <laughs> like work through some of these demonstrations and stuff um wow so yeah <laughs> i just was thinking about you know they they always um recommend doing something creative so i've had a tough day going and playing cello opens up so many things in your brain to kind of nice result you know oh there's a bit of dopamine and serotonin all these nice things to, to relax you and maybe some of that is mathematical in the sense that it resolves or you can't just play any notes and have it sound nice so or as a rock climber you know people stand at the bottom and they design a line and hopefully they get close to it and when you see those things work out just like math there's a, there's a, there is a feeling. So I could get that, that you do a geometry proof and go, Ooh, Oh, that's nice. Things, things worked out. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that, but we never recommend that as a society. That'd be such a weird thing. Hey, you're stressed. Do a little math. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I, I do think that there, there are like a lot of, like you said, like a lot of these activities have things in common like that, where there's a kind of synthesis that happens where you have a bunch of different elements it's it, you know it's like doing a puzzle or something like that where you have all these pieces and you're trying to put them together in a way that makes sense and at a certain point it kind of clicks together and you're like ah and that feels good <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely I feel like most of the activities in my life in some way involve that little incremental approach to eliminating the these margins that are acceptable mistakes you know whether that's like woodworking or screen printing or if you're rock climbing you know great if you made that move but even better if you didn't even like slip at all if you didn't have to re-grip just the perfection of like I feel like a spider everything I did and I only know this through documentaries but like even watching it is kind of cathartic to see someone gracefully do it and mm -hmm. so that would feel very much the same and yet then going back to like we were starting to talk about the process of thought you get the mountain in front of you and it probably feels great to just go I figured out a mountain. I figured out a pile <laughs> of thought. How do I find a line to, to make this make sense, to find a way even close to like what might, well, I don't even know where the top is, but to get to that point, how do you start mm -hmm. assembling that? Yeah, I think that it's, it's like a slow, I don't know, everybody has a different kind of process. For me, it's a kind of like slow chipping away. Like I think like to use another aesthetic metaphor, like people talk about like a statue that's hidden in the block of marble or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, you start out with a kind of big formless maybe idea <laughs> that's like, it seems really exciting, but like there's no quite kind of angle. You don't know how to approach it. And then you just start chipping away at it and you start thinking like, well, maybe maybe this is the best way to talk about this or to analyze this concept. And you kind of go down that road and you realize that's still kind of like vague and lumpy. And <laughs> you're like, as you go forward, and then finally you're left with something, ideally, hopefully, it, sometimes you abandon the project. <laughs> but like, sometimes you end up with something that's like, oh, okay, like I've, it's, it's finally emerged and it feels like I have 
found a precise way of describing this concept or I have found a kind of airtight argument for this thesis or something like that. Yeah. As ants are sending out scouts, you know, they then they would, oh, I, you know, I found some crumbs over here and they drag a little trail back and then pretty soon a thousand ants are coming in and out and eating your bread or wherever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the thing is that they found that started with a long journey of just this little satellite ant going, I'm just going to check it out. Let me see if there's anything out here. And <laughs> and thought feels that way to go out. And I, I think there's something here. Everyone come here, come look at this. And then going back to maybe something like Euclid, Euclid where, you know, A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. Simple, concise, easy to like describe to someone. Do you have something that you like could, could use as an example like that of a, of a thought that you've started as, yeah, I just went out as like this sole ant and pretty soon we had this loaf of bread or, you know, not to use too many metaphors, but we found something <laughs> that was A and then we found B and then pretty soon we kind of had this very sleek A equals C result. Yeah, I, I think, um, I don't think I've ever had anything that's like that that graceful or <laughs> or that sort of like profound (laughs) i think normally like my narrowing down process starts out with something that i it's like it's large and unformed and it feels like really profound or like really exciting and then like the more i whittle it down the like the the sort of more meager it gets until it's like this very very precise maybe like good argument or or good analysis but it's a very very small point (laughs) and it feels like a little bit like anticlimactic you're still proud of it but you're like oh yeah (laughs) so it's a little bit less of a splash than i was hoping to make um but yeah i think you know one of my main projects uh because i think for me uh bringing music and philosophy together has always been something that i've been really excited about um so one of my main projects i had this question that i wanted to figure out about like music in sort of the renaissance period and before was considered a branch of mathematical science and that seems very at least at least on the face of it it seems very alien to us today to think about it that way mm-hmm. as like you know you've got geometry you've got arithmetic and you've got music theory <laughs> you know like how is that a branch of mathematics that's weird um so one of the things that i wanted to kind of investigate or a question that i had that i wanted to articulate is like well how how was this conceived of in this way why was it conceived of it in this way and why did it change which is a huge question. Yeah. I don't have an answer for it. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I ended up kind of thinking about and I feel better about is uh, articulating some of the specific ways in which um, music theory changed the way people thought about philosophy. And in particular, thought about, you know, what are the fundamental building blocks of the universe? Mm-hmm. So that I think was something you know it's they're very specific ways and it's just like a tiny snippet in time so i didn't answer this big general question but i got some answers to some more specific questions yeah oh no it's i mean i love the I, isn't it like close encounters of the third kind that's kind of how they make contact is music notes and mm-hmm. the, and then we've sent up on voyager you know we had that the carl sagan disc that has music on it so it yeah. has like a language to say <laughs> hey, play this. If you have the tools to play this, there's just a very simple waveform in here that if you have mm-hmm. a needle that can read it, you're going to hear music. And maybe they go, yeah, yeah, we, we have a song really similar to this. And then there'd be such connectivity. And if that grew to where 
you know, different solar systems could at least approach each other through some sort of signal. That's the greatest touching imaginable to us right now. But then if, you know, nine solar systems are together and they're starting reaching out to like an entirely different black hole system or something, you know, way beyond farther into the the universe, we would say, oh, this all started because of a thought, a theory that this in some way not explains the universe, but helps us understand it. So that must feel so cool to be kind of like trying to take that fingerprint. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, you know, it's 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 fun because it's the type of thing um, that I think we we think of as being, you know, it's just very, you know, it's about expressing emotion like we talked about or something like that. But um, for some of these theorists, it was more about like, oh, this is this is fundamental to understanding like how the mechanisms of like perception work mm -hmm. so like like figuring out that maybe all of our sensory perception is just based on like weird vibrations like we've got sound wiggles and we've got maybe <laughs> that means we have like vision wiggles <laughs> you know this kind of stuff so yeah. um so yeah i think it's 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 the kind of it, it, a lot of the things that i like to to investigate have to do with like recontextualizing our pre preconceptions about something so like we think of music this way mm -hmm. but lo and behold like a few hundred years ago they thought about it completely differently um so what is what can that tell us about like the assumptions we make and and why we make them i like that i um i, I have a thought i want to pose after uh that, that ties exactly and i think maybe into that I think it ties pretty closely into that. Um, but then I was also thinking about like classical music and just to tie, like something you mentioned made me think of this. Sometimes before this show, I'll do uh, little sketches. And one of them was like a person meeting kind of an afterlife or the universe, like a God character and being like, can you explain this to me? And God's like, are you sure you're ready for this? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And then it's just music and opera and math equations and imperceptible sounds and then God's like, got it? And like, I think every person, if you felt that, because you would kind of intuitively feel, damn it, I heard all those sounds. And I, I did perceive all that, but no, I don't know what the hell that all means. <laughs> That's kind of the phase we're in now, or, you know, kind of where you're at of like, I want to slow that down and hear all those things coming by and see if we can just make a map of it a little bit and figure out, is, the, is this something? Is it a blueprint? What, what is this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or you you notice all of these kind of discrete components. And, yeah, yeah. And but but the way in which they all fit together like is not clear. And and so what you're trying to figure out is like, okay, what are the relationships between all of these things? What's the kind of structure that holds it all together? Yeah, yeah. We were talking. Uh, Matt um, um, Kirshen was on the show recently. He's a mathematician. I was referencing a TA I had in school that was convinced he could kind of do that. You know, like go outside and see the trees moving, hear music, be like, oh yeah, this all, you know, like be able to fundamentally bring it all together. And I'll bet people get in a place where they, maybe you've been there before where you're like rock climbing or something or playing the cello where like a note strikes you a certain way where you're like, oh man, for a second, like the universe kind of made some sense. That, <laughs> has that ever happened? Is that crazy? No, I, yeah, I think that there's like everybody maybe has those like little glimmers where like you you read a certain word or like you notice a certain sound and it kind of clicks with something that you've been thinking about or something that you've been trying to figure out and you're like oh 
that that might be the key to it. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> At least it seems that way for a little bit. Well, I want to posit my my dumb little idea. But if you're okay with it, we'll take a quick little break and then I'll mm-hmm. share with you. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you're enjoying it. Come on back for part two. Thanks again to Eric Lyons for making this conversation happen. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I In part two, we get more philosophical, uh, a lot more pondering. It's a lot more space cavey. So hopefully you'll come back and, and listen to that. Um, and thanks to those of you who do support the show through Patreon. It, this show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. It's relatively ad-free aside from me and this Patreon ramble, uh, patreon.com slash space cave, or you can go to the space cave Com. You can get screen prints and things I've made over the years that uh, you can show your support for the Space Cave. And um, I don't know. If you want to help the show, that's a way to do it. Uh, guest suggestions, those are great, especially if you go a step further like Eric did and make that connection. Put people in touch. Uh, Matthew Clement did that recently, and we're going to have a conversation with one of his friends. And so these things are very helpful if you're like, oh, I think this would be a fun chat if so-and-so was on the show. Put me in touch. I'd love to. And I really appreciate that music suggestions or beer or topics or guests or whatever. Um, all ears. Pings at thespacecave.com. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for helping out in any way you can, whether that's just rating, reviewing, subscribing, telling a friend. Uh, I don't know what else, sharing it on some sort of platform that you're on, whatever you want to do, it's all helpful and I appreciate it. And I like doing the show and hopefully we can uh, grow it a little bit. Anyway, let's get out of here and let's get speed ahead. Hopefully you're hitting the fast forward button to get into part two because it's great. But before you do, I want to stick around and listen to this music because this song is by Dominica's band. Bitter Bloom, with her friend Mark Harris. They're based out of Fort Collins. We'll talk about this a little bit more in part two. I chose this song because it features some pretty hardcore cello shredding. I love the cello. This puts it on display and shows how great she is. And I don't think it's her trying to, like, show off. She's just good at cello. And this song, I think, is great. And also, I think it features the cello heavily, which I love. I hope you like it, too. It's called Long Time Coming from Bitter Bloom, Dominica Romagni, Mark Harris from Fort Collins, Colorado. I hope you like it. Thanks again to Eric. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.